Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. And um, even those of you who, who are watching, who aren't necessarily from, or maybe you've never been here, maybe you've never been inside Horizon Church, but you've been plugged into us on YouTube, love to have you help with this. It goes to a good cause as well. So between now and January, between the end of February, um, if you can get here. The other thing you can do, and I think uh, Joanne said this, is um, you can order socks online and just have them sent to the church if you want to do that. If for some reason you live too far away and can't get here but want to participate, just do that. Order some online, send them, have them sh- uh, shipped directly here. And we'd love, uh, love that if you participate. So let me pray and then we will be moving on. So would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to connect with another people, another group of people who also follow Jesus. God, uh, I pray this morning that what we do together would be impactful in our community. This meets just a very real, very practical need. And for many of us, for many of us, God, because of our own life experiences, it's hard to fathom needing a pair of socks and not being able to get them. But God, there are, for all kinds of reasons, there are people in our communities, um, in shelters, people who are desperate for many reasons, especially because of what we're going through right now. And this is just a tangible way to meet needs and to share the love that we have because of Jesus, because of you. So we're grateful for this opportunity God, I want to pray for every single person who will get a pair of socks. Pray for every child, every mom. I pray for every man, every dad. Everybody who gets a pair of socks, God, I pray that in some way they would come to understand that um, there's a God who also loves them very much and can help them to redirect their lives. God, I thank you that you've done that for us. I thank you, God, that you make it possible for us to live in your kingdom now and forever and to be people who are being transformed by the presence of your spirit in our lives. God, it's because of the presence of of Jesus here, right here with us, wherever we are. It's because of your presence, God, that I can ask you and trust you to do things which to me are somewhat extraordinary. So one more time, God, I want to pray that as we talk about the Bible, because of this burden for truth that we have, because of an anxiousness about never wanting to tell somebody the wrong thing, um, I pray that through your, your spirit, God, that you would help all of us from being influenced the wrong way if I say anything that isn't true or accurate. But God, I am so grateful. I look at my own life and see how over a lot of years you've taken truth that I learn and you're in the process of shaping me to be the kind of person you want me to be and that's the kind of person I want to be. And God, I pray that you'd be doing that for all of us, for anybody listening 
not only to me, God, but people who are listening to other pastors, other teachers all around the world. I pray, God, that you'd be doing the same thing. And thank you, God, for the confidence we have in you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard of Northwestern University? Uh, yeah, a bunch of you have. I'm, most of us probably have here or whether you're watching online. Now, I, um, I do not want to talk about Northwestern University. I actually want to talk about the name Northwestern. Here's the odd thing about Northwestern University. If you know where it is, it's um, located in Illinois. And if you would look at a map, that means that Northwestern University is kind of right smack in the middle of our country. However, it has its name Northwestern because... It was founded, when it was founded, it was founded at a place that was then the far northwest of the United States. Hence, it was called Northwestern University. This is an area where Northwestern was, found, was founded, and if you look at, at a map, this is an area, and I always thought, um, how many of you have thought Northwestern Territory always meant, like, the Pacific Northwest? It did not. And I did not know this until recently. The northwestern territories of our country are in an area that today is right smack in the middle of our country. It would be parts of western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And at the time, back in the day, this area was thought of as wild country. It was thought of as the wilderness. Now, everybody knew that the Native Americans had lived there for millennia, but at the time, there were no U.S. settlers, no settlers from the United States living there. Until... Just after the Revolutionary War, and right after the end of the Revolutionary War, there were some settlers who lived in the East Coast, along the East Coast, who started to cross those mountains in the middle of Pennsylvania, and they started to establish, right on the other side of the Ohio River, they, they started to establish the first settlement in the Northwestern Territories. And the first settlement was a little settlement still there today called Marietta, Ohio. And Marietta, Ohio is still there today. And they settled there. And I just finished reading a really, really good book about these first pioneers. And this area, this area, the Northwest Territories, at the time when they first settled there, it was an area that was, uh, it was somewhat hostile. Uh, there was a lot of, um, it was not necessarily a safe place to be. And there were a lot of reasons for that hostility. Some of the reasons had to do with the fact that this part of the country was an intersection for several European nations who were trying to, you know, colonize or put little settlements here for Spain and France and England. And of course, you know, then there was the, the baby United States at the time where settlers were moving west too. So there was this conflict between European nations, but then obviously the conflict we all know about, uh, this territory was being yanked away, stolen from Native Americans by these settlers. So although the earliest settlers in Marietta, Ohio, although they at first uh, had really good relationships with the Native Americans, uh, and the other people that were settling, joining them, there came a time when there was a great deal of hostility, uh, open warfare and, and murder uh, that was going on. So all of the pioneers, all of the pioneers that were in Marietta, Ohio, they had to leave their homes and they had to leave their farms and they had to go live together in what was called the stockade. Now the stockade was really a tiny little fort 
Uh, it was not made to be a comfortable place. It was not made to uh, be a place where a crowd of people could live for any, any length of time. But everybody had to move in there. All the pioneers who moved west to the Northwest Territories, all the pioneers who, you know, they were used to the wide open spaces. They all had to move into the stockade where they were crowded together. And it was not where any of them wanted to be. Nobody wanted to be there. But after the first few very miserable days in the stockade, to their credit, all of these pioneers decided they were going to make the best of it. And they decided to do things like every evening they would get together and they would socialize. And they started holding dances in the evening. They sat around their campfires and they told stories and they sang songs. They held foot races and they held boxing matches. And the thing about this is that everybody... Everybody in the stockade was invited to these events. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. There were no distinctions at all between the rich people and the poor people, between the farmers and the business people. There were no distinctions between um, anybody at all, between any social classes. It was just us, just us. And they were forced to live together this way for three years, for three years. And then peace came. And when it did, everybody left the stockade and they went back to their farms and they went back to their isolated homes. And oddly enough, what they all said was, that was the best time of our lives. They wrote in their journals and they wrote in their letters home things like this, how we miss the fondness we had for each other then. One of them wrote this, we were united in bonds of friendship like one great family, bound together in a common brotherhood. In after years, when each household lived separate, we looked back on those days with satisfaction and pleasure as a period when the best affections of the heart were called forth. Now, does it surprise you at all that the very best time of their lives was a time when they lived life in community? Does it surprise you at all that the best time in life was a time when they lived with each other? And does it surprise you that people would willingly walk away from something they knew to be good and to be the best so that they could pursue an American dream that they knew would never bring about the best. Does it surprise you that human beings choose second best? It does not surprise most of us, I'm sure, because we see it every single day. We make the same kind of decisions all the time. Because to be in community is hard. It is just hard. Relationships are hard. To live in community, to live in relationships with each other, it demands something from us. And it is a whole lot easier for us to get our short-term happy fix from the new car smell, the big screen, the little screen, work, hunting, or any of a number of distant second bests. 
But a follower of Jesus, I am, and so are you. And so I know that you will all want the best, as do I. You will want the kind of life that Jesus talked about, the kind of life that Jesus said we could be living in his kingdom. The very best life that Jesus has to offer is life lived with you. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm pretty sure that you will also find that life in the kingdom that Jesus has to offer is a better life. So I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're paying attention. And I want you to know that starting today, we're going to invest the next couple Sundays in talking about life in the kind of communities that Jesus was dreaming we would build which is life with you. And we're going to begin this morning by talking about and reading some of the very last words that Jesus ever spoke to his closest friends before their world turned upside down with the cross. A man named John who was, I think, probably the best friend that Jesus had when he was here John wrote the last words of Jesus, and I'm going to read. John is quoting Jesus here. I'm going to read starting in John chapter 15, the book he wrote about Jesus, John chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 12 to 17. This is right smack in the middle of a long conversation, the last words of Jesus. And John quoting Jesus says this, this is my commandment, love each other, in the same way that I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you're my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. Now I'm going to ask, um, I'm going to ask that you will please forgive me if I um, nullify your caffeine over the next couple of minutes. Um, Because at the risk of putting you to sleep, I really want to show you something in this episode kind of grammatically before we actually look at the words of Jesus. In other words, what I want to talk about for a few minutes is I want to talk about um, what John was doing when he wrote this the way he wrote it. And we'll talk about that before we actually talk about what Jesus actually said, okay? Okay. And those of you who know me know that that's not really a question. But um, so here's, here's where we go. Bible scholars, the Bible scholars call this unit, if you could organize John's gospel into units, Bible scholars call this unit the, quote, final discourse of Jesus. Just a fancy way of saying these are Jesus' last words. 
And this unit, this final discourse, actually starts in John chapter 13. And it goes all the way through 13, 14, 15, 16, and chapter 17. That's five total chapters in a book that is only 21 chapters long. Which means that this final discourse is almost one quarter of the book. That's one single speech of Jesus that John records that is a total of one quarter of the whole book. So I would say John thinks that these words are pretty important, right? If he devotes a quarter of the book to it. Now, here's the other thing that's going on in the way that John organized this. Not only is John taking up a whole lot of the book, but John is a Hebrew And the Hebrew mind organizes their thoughts, especially when they write them down. They organize their thoughts differently than we do. Most of us, because of our cultural upbringing, we organize our thoughts, especially when we write them down. We organize our thoughts in kind of a linear fashion. We start a story and we go somewhere, and usually the climax of the story is towards the end. We move in a straight line from beginning to end. The Hebrew mind is different. They organize their stories, their literature, in a different kind of way. Now, typically, it's called a chiastic structure. You don't need to know the words. That's more than you need to know. But there's an example of what a chiastic structure would be like. It's how it's organized. And what's important in the chiastic structure, the way the Hebrew mind works when it writes something down, is that the climax, the most important part, doesn't come at the end. It usually comes right smack in the middle. It's almost like a circular kind of thing. They start, they get to the middle, the important thing, and then they go back to the start. And that's usually the way Hebrew thought is organized. Now, that does not mean that the rest is unimportant. It simply means that if you can figure out what's at the center, then you know that everything else in one way or another is is rooted to or tied to the center. Here's why I'm telling you this. Most Bible scholars know, those at least who understand the Hebrew mind, that the verses I read to you, verses 12 to 17, they are the center point of this entire conversation from chapter 13 all the way through the end of chapter 17. These are the center point of how John organizes this conversation. Now, that does not mean that you can go home and count the verses and there will be the same number before and after. It's not what it means. It means that if you could outline what John is writing down, that John has written this in such a way that these verses are central to what John is saying. Every other idea that John writes in this whole discourse as he records it Every other idea, in one way or another, is rooted in these few verses. That's the idea. Now, one more thing about this. Not only are these verses central, but if you have your Bible open to what I was just showing you, if if these are the central point, you will also notice, if you can still look at your Bible, that this section is bracketed 
In other words, it begins and it ends with the exact same phrase. And the phrase is, in verse 12 and verse 17, the phrase is, this is my command. Love each other. That's how it begins and that's how it ends. And anybody who knows Jesus is not surprised by this at all. Because this is who Jesus was when he was here in person. When Jesus answered questions about what is most important to God, he answered by saying love. Love God and love others. And everything else Jesus said, quoting scripture, everything else hangs from here. Love God, love others. So it should surprise nobody that when Jesus is speaking his last words pre-cross, he says, guys, here's where we are. You need to love each other. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, or if you remember, you may remember that there is one very short little phrase that is so important. It comes at the end of that phrase in verse 12 when Jesus says, here's my command, you should love each other. And in verse 12, he adds one very important little phrase, and that phrase is, in the same way that I've loved you. This is my command, love each other in the same way that I've loved you. Which means that for Jesus, this isn't just a command. Jesus is saying, what I am is what you're supposed to be. What I've done is what I want you to do. Which means we can actually draw some lessons from Jesus, from what he said and from the kind of life he lived, we can draw some lessons to figure out what is it, what's the kind of community that Jesus is hoping we will build. So here's the first lesson that I've learned from what Jesus is saying here and from looking at his life. I noticed that there is a kind of progression. And what I mean by this is Jesus said this, and this is really odd. Maybe you caught it when I read this. Jesus says this. He says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. And that's the progression I'm talking about. This movement from slaves to friends. Well, I have to be really honest, and maybe some of you are already kind of going here yourselves. It is really, really hard to find any place where Jesus actually called these guys slaves. But I will say this, according to some history that I read, the relationship between a rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi, the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples, his students, was often described as a relationship between a master and his servants. It was typical to describe that relationship this way, between a master and his servants. And I think the reason for that was that when a disciple 
chose a rabbi. And that's usually the way it went, by the way. Hardly ever until Jesus came along did it go the other way, where a rabbi would choose his disciples. It didn't usually work that way. So normally, when a disciple chose his rabbi, a disciple would voluntarily put himself under the authority of the rabbi. And the disciple would be saying to the rabbi, he would be saying, Rabbi, teach me how to live. I, I want to know everything that you have to offer. Show me everything that you know about life. I am yours to command. Teach me everything. Now, this is where it gets interesting with Jesus. Unlike every other rabbi we know about, where the disciples chose their rabbi, Jesus turns it upside down, and Jesus chooses his disciples. And if you would go to the Gospel of Mark, written by another friend of Jesus, in the beginning of Mark's Gospel, when Mark is talking about the time when Jesus chose these disciples, Mark chapter 3, Mark writes this. Jesus appointed 12 of them that they might be with him. And that's an extraordinarily simple but a huge sentence. That what Jesus set out to do with these men is to be with them. And they with him. What Jesus was doing over the next few years of their life was to simply be with them as they learned how to do his kind of a life. They walked everywhere together. They talked together. They ate. They slept. They fished. All kinds of ordinary moments of life, they just did them with each other, day after day after day. And then, of course, with Jesus, there were those just extraordinary moments of life. Like the time when a group of four friends interrupted a crowded Bible study that Jesus was having by knocking a hole in the roof and lowering a friend down through that hole in the roof so that they could get this friend in the presence of Jesus. And as the disciples watched this, the story goes that Jesus looked up through the dust at the four faces of those friends and he smiled and he says to the friends, your faith has healed him. And it did. And he gets up and walks away. And then there are those, those storm-tossed extraordinary moments on Galilee. Those are extraordinary moments when, when blind men saw. There were moments when Jesus takes a few fish and a few pieces of bread and he feeds thousands of people and lepers were cleansed and all kinds of moments that just had to turn their brains inside out. And there were those moments of just incredible tension when the Jewish leaders were trying to trap Jesus and it became apparent that they hated this rabbi. And there were those confounding moments when Jesus talked with people that he shouldn't have been talking with, like a Samaritan woman. Or when Jesus was telling stories and everybody said, Jesus, we just have no idea what you're talking about. And all of those experiences, 
those normal experiences of just walking and talking and sleeping and eating and all of those incredible experiences, they were all, all of them, they just accumulated one after the other and they piled up one after the other, after the other, after the other, and it became a life that they just all shared together. And in some ways, that's the definition of friendship. That's the definition of living in community. Sharing the experiences of life. One after the other, after the other, we just share the experiences of life. What is it that makes a friendship a friendship? We share experiences. We share life. Last evening, Donna called me to the front window of her house. She saw a display of gorgeous orange as the sun was setting. And she said, come here. You have to see this. I came and I saw, and we enjoyed that glory of the setting sun for the few moments it lingered. Here's the question. Why did Donna call me? I don't know. I can't put it in words exactly. But you all know that that's what we do. There's this irresistible urge that we have to share experiences with people we love. And when we see that kind of experience, it's natural for us. Come here, you have to see this. Where we take a picture so we can go home and say, look what I saw. You know, my dad was my first hunting partner. And he remained so for quite a few years until he couldn't keep up anymore. I was with my dad when he took his last deer 20 years ago. And for the last two decades or so, when every year I was blessed with a deer, my very first thought always was, wait till dad, dad hears. And I would snap a picture, and I would go home, and I would go to dad, and they'd say, dad, look, 2018, when I got my first deer after my dad's death, I took a picture and then thought, who will I show? I have no one to tell. And that changes things. There's something about life that makes us need to share it. And friendship is simply the accumulation of shared experiences. Now, I know that sounds very simple, but it is so important. It's so important. And this is why. We're commanded to love, right? But you know, and I know, that it is possible for love to be one way. You can love, and love might not always be returned. Jesus told us, for example, to love our enemies. Jesus told stories about loving strangers. Maybe, maybe the 
the most famous story that Jesus ever told is a story that we call the story of the prodigal son, which is really a story about a father who had two boys. And it's obvious when you read through the story about the father that Jesus is telling a story about our father. And you discover that a father loved two boys and we don't know if either of the two ever loved him back. But the father surely loves, doesn't he? Whether it is returned or not, the father loves. But this is why this is so important. Friendship is different than love. Friendship can't be done alone. If it isn't returned, then it isn't friendship. Friendship is not about me. It's about we. It has to be. Friendship is life shared. I just got my 2021 Wyoming Outfitters and Guides magazine. And one of the things they do every year in this magazine is they, to announce a year's worth of awards. For example, they give out the Guide of the Year Award. I didn't win it. They give out the Outfitter of the Year Award, the Conservationist of the Year Award. And this year, the 2020 Hunter of the Year is a young man named Zachary Stinson, USMC sergeant, retired. Zachary and his family live not far away from here in Pennsylvania. Zachary joined the Marines when he was a young man. He was deployed in Afghanistan. In November of 2010, Zachary stepped on an IED and he lost both legs along with most of his fingers. He spent two years in hospitals. Zachary, in this short article, said that his life verse is Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he does. And Zachary has. He runs triathlons. He works. He volunteers. He works with other vets. And he hunts. And here's the thing, in most of the pictures showing Zach when he is hunting, he is always on the ground looking like he is standing in a hole. Because, of course, he has no legs. And as I looked at these pictures, I found myself processing, well, if Zachary got there, he didn't get there by himself, did he? And he says as much in the final sentence of his little paragraph, quoting Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, And I thank God daily for the friends God has graciously blessed me with. I guess so. Because Zachary knows more than most of us. If he got here, he did not get here by himself. And most of us don't know that. We don't know if we got here 
We didn't get here alone. What a, what a sad, sad, sad state of life to not know that. Friendship, the thing that most of us want, the thing that Jesus said he wants from us requires shared experiences. There's no other way. So here we are at the start of a new year. What can you do? What can I do in 2021 to be a better friend? What can we do to be better at being friends? How are you going to include other people in your life? Which leads me to a warning, and this is the second thing that I noticed in Jesus' lesson. Jesus actually said, friendship is costly. There's a price tag that comes with friendship. Jesus said it this way when talking to his friends. He said, you know, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, I think it's really interesting, um, and I think that this is actually important. When Jesus said that during this final conversation with his friends, he said it pre-cross. So his friends, when Jesus said that sentence about laying down one's life for his friends, his friends didn't know what was coming. They didn't know that when Jesus said that, he actually meant it. And he meant it for real. He meant that he would lay down his life. And when he said that, they had no idea that he meant it for real. Now, by the time that John wrote this down, several years later, John, of course, did know. John was looking back, and he was writing a story about something he didn't understand at the time, but something that he understood when he wrote it. So John is writing this so that he can tell us what he now knows to be true Friendship is costly. It will cost you. Do you know when you are on the outside of a friendship looking in, and if you look at the cost, it does not look at all appealing. The idea of that kind of a commitment looks way, way too pricey because we have to give up so much. I think that's one reason why a decade or so ago, the hooking up culture looked so appealing. A few minutes of fake intimacy and no cost. Now, today, we have a much better idea of the damage that was done to human beings when we try those kind of shortcuts 
we now know how souls, a whole generation of souls, has been deeply scarred and shattered by shortcuts. Because intimacy doesn't come that way. It doesn't come cheaply. There are other words for what the hooking up culture is, but intimacy or friendship or love, it is not. So John records the words of Jesus to let us know, if you want life in his kingdom, you have to know it will cost. There's a price tag. So, if I am tempted to commit to a relationship, I am obviously going to have to give up some things. I'm no longer entirely free. And that's a scary thing. Lots and lots of us think, well, I don't want to give up my freedom. I want to be able to spend my time the way I want to. I want to be able to spend my money the way I want to. I don't want to be tied to someone else. And I admit that there is a certain kind of appeal to that kind of narcissistic freedom. My life is mine. I want to live it the way I want. But here's the thing. What I lose by refusing to commit to you, what I lose is a deeper kind of freedom and a deeper kind of love that can never be known if you refuse to pay the price. This is so important. Stick with me so it makes sense. There's a guy no longer living, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, who was a brilliant man. He was probably a top 10 influencer in our world two generations ago during the lifetime of my great-grandparents. He wrote about this exactly, and he said, when I make a commitment, I am making an appointment with myself for some unknown time and in some unknown circumstances. And the appointment I'm making is, this is the kind of person I am going to be. I am saying to you, I don't know what's going to happen, but you can trust me. You can trust me. And trust, trust makes possible a kind of freedom and a kind of love that cannot be known any other way. When a commitment is kept, in that unknown time and those unknown circumstances, when a commitment is kept, trust grows. And when it isn't kept, trust is broken, and you have to start all over again, and it is so much harder. But that trust that is growing leads to the kind of relationships that most of us want to be living 
It leads to the kind of love that most of us want to have. So you have to decide, am I going to pay the price? Am I willing to pay the price in self-disclosure? Am I willing to pay the price in time? Am I willing to pay the price in being willing to receive, to be the one sometimes who is needy and not just the one who gives? Am I willing to pay the price in being truthful? Am I willing to pay the price of grace? There's a pastor named David Stone who used to write a whole lot about his favorite uncle, Greg. Now, Greg had cerebral cerebral palsy. He was a quadriplegic, which means that Greg lived all of his life, as long as David had known him, he lived all of his life in an electric wheelchair. He was able to control the chair with a few jerky movements of his head, but he wasn't able to move his arms or his legs. And Greg, because of his disease, had a really, really difficult time speaking. It's hard to make himself understood. But David said of Greg that when he was alive, Greg was an incredible inspiration to him. He called him a guy with a golden attitude who found ways to love people the best way he could. Well, one time, Greg went to a week-long camp for people who were like him, who had serious physical limitations. Now, the only way that Greg and guys like him could spend a week at this camp was if someone else volunteered to be with him all week long. And there was a guy at Greg's church, a guy named John, who volunteered. John paid the price of a week. For one solid week, 24 hours a day, John was with Greg. Every bite of food Greg ate, John fed him. Every drink John gave him. Every bathroom break, John assisted and cleaned up Greg. Every shower, John washed him. Every bit of clothing Greg put on, John put it on. John slept for a week on the concrete floor in an air mattress beside Greg's bed. In the afternoons, every afternoon, John had managed to get a group of friends from church to show up so that together they could put Greg on this special flotation thing and they could take Greg out in the water on the lake. It was the first time in Greg's entire life that he ever went swimming. For most of the campers, swimming was the highlight of the week. Now, this camp has a tradition. On the last night of camp, they get all the campers together along with their volunteer. And one by one, the campers come to the front and they get asked about the favorite things that they did that week. Usually, usually almost every camper, when they ask, what was your favorite thing, they almost always say swimming. Now, because Greg has a hard time talking, when it was his turn to talk, he would say a few words and then look at John, and John would kind of answer his questions. John would say things like, well, we we nicknamed Greg the fish because he had so much fun swimming, things like that. 
But when they asked Greg, what was your favorite thing? And John started to answer swimming. Greg shook his head vigorously, and he looked up at John, and he simply said, you. And John said, oh, I'm sure there was something better, something you loved more this week. What was the best thing? Anna Gray just looked at him again and said, you. Most of us will never know a moment like that. Because to get there, there's a cost. Being a friend has a price. And Jesus paid it. And he paid it for you and for me. And he paid it so that you and I can have the grace and the freedom and the love to live forever in his kingdom with you. He's the only one who makes it possible to live this way, to live life with you. Let's pray. Father, we have just so much to learn about being friends, about living life in community. God, I have so much to learn. Sometimes I'm simply not willing to pay the price because the cost is steep. And by failing to pay the price, I'm losing so much. So much freedom, so much grace, so much love. God, I pray that you would enable us as people who love you and who follow Jesus. I pray, God, you'll help us to be willing to build our lives around community, life with you, and life with each other. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.